Hey everybody, I'm Dave Rosillo, and welcome back to Written Spoken. The premise of this podcast is simple. You hear the written word come to life as the spoken word through the voices of the writers who wrote them. Our first season revolved around one voice, my own. As a writer and a lover of podcasts, I started Written Spoken as a sort of creative experiment. It made sense to start with my own voice and my own writing. But part of the plan all along was to create a richer tapestry of voices. So in season two, you'll be introduced to 10 authors reading their words in their own voices with interviews to follow. In today's episode, we're joined by multi-award winning author Marcello DeCintio. Marcello joins us to read an excerpt from his 2012 book, Walls, Travels Along the Barricades. As you'll hear, his book remains relevant to political situations ongoing to this very day, as our world grapples with more walls, isolationism, and the likes of viruses, which don't respect imaginary borders. In this conversation, which was originally recorded in August 2016, we discuss the art of travel writing, how Marcello's journey as a traveling writer has evolved over time and with experience, and whether or not you seek out stories or they seek you when you're traveling in the world. We also discuss walking the fine line between subjective storytelling and making outright political stances. Is it moral or responsible to side with one over the other? I think you'll really like this conversation. It's really fascinating, especially for writers, authors, creatives, aspiring writers who are interested in how to grapple with insecurities, dealing with ego, even falling in love with the editorial process. A big thanks to Marcello for allowing us to republish this interview as we put together our second season amid social distancing. Uh, I'm really uh, appreciative to him for reading this fresh excerpt from his book. That's all from me for now. Happy listening. Take it away, Marcello. It was a bad day for a protest. I stood in Mohammed's kitchen and looked out of the window at the rain pouring down. Mohammed's second-floor apartment was only half-finished, rarely cleaned, and smelled of new plaster and cigarette smoke. A week-old tub of yogurt sat on the countertop among spent yellow-label tea bags and cigarette butts. Plastic soda bottles and falafel wrappers spilled onto the floor beneath the hole in the countertop where a sink should have been. The previous day's pita had hardened into leather. One of Mohammed's brothers brewed tea with water from the bathroom sink, the only running water in the place, for the small gathering of activists from overseas waiting in the salon. Julia, a German activist with the International Solidarity Movement, boasted about being blacklisted and strip-searched by the IDF. She advised me to remove my contacts. The tear gas gets behind your lenses, she warned, tracing on her eyeliner. There was supposed to be a demonstration against the wall that day, but earlier in the week the IDF had raided Jayus. Soldiers entered the village at night, seized about a hundred young men, and penned them in the school gymnasium. The IDF troops also occupied several village houses and spray-painted a Star of David over a pro-freedom mural on a school wall. They took about a dozen men with them when they left. The men were still in custody somewhere in Israel. I wondered if the night action by the IDF would intimidate the young men out of their weekly protest. I asked Mohammed if anything was going to happen. He replied that he didn't know. He said, the street will decide. I didn't believe him. His cell phone rang all morning. If anyone knew, Mohammed did. From Mohammed's window, we watched the road leading from the center of the village to the wall's south gate. At around noon, just as the group in the kitchen decided there would be no demonstration, 
we saw a half dozen young men walking up the road. Another group followed them. They didn't have banners or flags or any other accoutrement of protest. It is the Shabab, Muhammad said. The word is Arabic for youth, but in the context of occupied Palestine, Shabab refers to the bands of rebellious young Palestinian men, the stone throwers and troublemakers, who wage their miniature intifadas on the IDF. Muhammad pulled on a black coat with a fur-lined collar, pocketed his cell phone, and handed his camera to Aiden, a Canadian volunteer with Stop the Wall. Muhammad walked down the stairs and out the door. The rest of us followed him up the road. We stopped at the edge of an olive orchard and watched as the Shabab calmly lifted stones from the road and hurled them over the trees. Aiden told me IDF soldiers were positioned on the other side of the grove. I could not see past the grey trunks and grey-green leaves, and the Shabab could not see where their stones landed. Eventually, a clank of rock against metal signaled that someone had hit something. Probably an IDF jeep. The stone throwers turned to each other and grinned. The response came quickly. A pop from behind the trees and a tear gas canister wheezed yellowish smoke overhead. I thought of Julia and feared for my contact lenses, but the wind whipped away the fumes. Then an explosion boomed so loud that my head vibrated. Everyone cowered. Sound grenades. I looked back and forth, suddenly breathing hard, wondering if and where I should run. I glanced over at Mohammed. He ducked from the noise and covered his ears with his hands. Like the others, he smiled nervously from his crouch. The Shabab laughed and reached for more stones to continue their assault on soldiers they could not yet see. Someone yelled something in Arabic, and the mood changed. The boys started running out of the groves. They still grinned, but were obviously fleeing something. Aiden looked calm. I asked him what was happening. The Israelis are coming, he said. I heard the army jeep engines rumble. The Shabab began to roll small boulders into a line across the road to slow the IDF vehicles, their own wall, for what it was worth. Muhammad shouted at Aiden to help. He ran forward and rolled a rock into the line. He was the only international among the barricade builders, and Muhammad reminded him to wipe the dirt from his hands afterwards. Otherwise, the Israelis will know you helped us, he said. I envied Aiden. He was a Canadian like me, but also, somehow, one of the Shabab. I wanted to join him. I believed in this cause. I wanted to be part of this rebellion rather than a mere witness. The barrier these men fought against inspired me to write about walls in the first place. Cowardice, though, stopped me. I feared pain, the burn of tear gas, the red welts raised by a soldier's baton. I imagined being arrested, blacklisted, and deported. I chalked up my inaction to an observer's neutrality, but really, I didn't have the nerve. There was not much of a barrier built before the men abandoned it. The Israelis were too close. The protesters ran down the road and joined the boys who again gathered stones to throw. I didn't want to run. I felt that running would implicate me somehow. But then another grenade exploded and rattled my head. I fled with the others up the road and around a corner where someone had written stop the wall. My muscles turned to stone and my legs shook. I cursed quietly to myself. Nothing in my experience had prepared me for this. I felt helpless and desperately wanted someone to guide me through, but I was no one's concern. All I could do was imitate the others and trust that they knew how to stay safe. 
So I ran when the Shabab ran and stopped when they stopped. I spotted Aiden and sprinted to his side. Then a new sound, a crack I didn't recognize. Rubber bullets, Aiden warned. We ran again. I didn't look back. I was afraid to see how close the soldiers were. The melee progressed farther into the village. We turned a corner, stepped over another row of boulders the Shabab had lined up across the road and continued to a ledge overlooking the valley. Israeli soldiers assembled on the other side. I saw them ducking under the clotheslines on the rooftops and taking cover behind black water tanks. On the ledge, a half-dozen Shabab hurled stones at the IDF with homemade slings. Mohammed told me that Palestinians are born knowing how to sling a stone. He joked that West Bank boys emerged from their mother's wombs, swinging their umbilical cords over their heads. I stood behind the Shabab, afraid of being hit by an errant rock, and watched as they co-opted King David's weapon against his own heirs. Some wrapped kafiyas around their face to hide them, but most didn't bother. The rain slickened cheeks too young for beards and soaked through their blue jeans. A boy in his late teens carried a sling made of denim and nylon cords. He threaded a finger through the hoop on the one end of the cord and gripped both ends with his right hand. He lifted a rock from the road, placed it in the cradle of denim, and held his arm straight out from the side of his slim body. The stone swung back and forth in his cradle as if being lulled to sleep. The boy bent his legs and turned to spot the soldiers over his shoulder. He paused for this moment in a taut, proud pose. The boy swept the sling over his head and his hands spun on its wrist. The cords blurred and whistled as the stone strained against its cradle. He cocked his body back, twisted his face into a sneer, and snapped the rock into the air as his body lurched forward. When the sling released, it made a sound like a bird, and, relieved of its turning force, fell slack at the boy's waist as the stone flew. But the boy did not watch to see it land. His eyes searched the ground. He lifted another stone and cradled it. The sling swung and whirled and whistled again. His movements possessed a furious, graceful beauty. I didn't want to leave the boys. I couldn't resist their swagger, but I would have found no beauty if the rocks actually struck anyone. Mohammed told me about an older man in Jayus, a veteran of the first intifada, who was a sniper with a sling. He was not in action that day. I never saw any of these boys hit anyone. But this was not their point. For the Shabab, it was enough just to resist, to not cower, to fill a hard grey sky with hard grey stones. The IDF insist the stone throwers trigger the army's reaction. The moment a rock gets thrown, the marchers become rioters and the protest an insurrection. Activists can hardly cling to claims of nonviolence, the Israelis say, if the Shabab pelt soldiers with rocks. As much as I admired the Shabab's rebellion, I struggled to reconcile hurl stones with peaceful protest. A sling is inaccurate and archaic, almost as prehistoric a tactic as a fortified wall. Yet it remains a weapon. A sling is designed to smash and crack. A slung stone can shatter a skull. Dozens of soldiers have been wounded in this way. When I asked Muhammad about this, he told me rocks were all the Palestinians had. 
Stones are the only way for us to show power, to show anger, to show togetherness. The sling boys were icons of resistance. Yet Muhammad insisted that nobody in Jayus is willing to kill another human being. I believed him. Nothing about Muhammad or the boys on the ledge felt barbaric to me. The Shabab slung stones out of defiance, not bloodlust. Besides, the battle on the streets was hardly even. Far more Palestinians than Israelis have been injured in these weekly clashes. Muhammad himself took four rubber bullets in the back during one demonstration. The IDF has often been accused of using live ammunition against the protesters, and some Palestinians have been killed during demonstrations. One of these was 28-year-old Mustafa Tamimi. In 2011, an IDF soldier aimed a tear gas rifle out of the door of a military jeep at Tamimi and, because he was chasing the jeep and throwing stones, shot him in the face. Tamimi died a few hours later. As I watched Israeli forces, clad in bulletproof vests and helmets, emerge from armored jeeps to wage war on rock-throwing teenagers, the IDF claims of self-defense seemed absurd. You just heard the voice of Marcello DiCintio, the author of four books, including Walls, Travels Along the Barricades, which won the Shaughnessy Cohen Prize for Political Writing and the W.O. Mitchell City of Calgary Book Prize. DiCintio's newest book, Pay No Heed to the Rockets, Palestine in the Present Tense, also a W.O. Mitchell Prize winner, seeks to reveal life in contemporary Palestine as seen through the lens of Palestine's rich literary culture. DeCintio's magazine writing has also appeared in publications such as the International New York Times, The Walrus, Canadian Geographic, and Afar. Currently, DeCintio is working on a book about the secret lives of taxi drivers. Marcello, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us on Written Spoken. Oh, thank you. You are oftentimes described or defined as a travel writer, but from what I recall, what you told me in our in our group at the 2015 Iceland Writers Retreat, that you tend to describe yourself more as a writer who travels. Uh, so my question for you as a writer who travels is, you know, throughout your experiences, I think it's a little bit different now when you have a book project in mind, but maybe early on, do you find that you're the one who's searching for the stories when you travel, um, or do you, or do the stories really find you, or is it a mix of the two? Is it a matter of more like putting yourself out there and being open and asking questions? Is it more of like an active process, or something that you know they kind of find you? Uh, it's become more active for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean that 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 the first book I wrote uh, uh, was about traveling, backpacking through Western Africa. I didn't have any. Uh, uh, I didn't know I was going to write a book. Uh, um, I was there to, I was, I did some volunteer work and then traveled for, I was gone for a year all in. And it's when I came back, I started writing the stories down and, and eventually that turned into my first book. So I wasn't there as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything that's in that work is stuff that just, just happened to happen to me. You know what I mean? Nothing, right. that, nothing, that, I, nothing that I sought out for the purposes of writing it. Um, everything since then though, has been, uh, purposeful, you know, deliberate. I go out in search of a particular story. Um, my second book, it was about some, about time I spent in Iran, uh, uh, looking at, uh, kind of the dual phenomenon. I was looking at the Iranian veneration for their ancient poets. Mm-hmm. Also, I was looking for old styles of traditional wrestling. So these, these two very different things, but I had an itinerary or, or not an itinerary. I had a focus. I mm-hmm. had places that I wanted to go and things that I wanted to see. Now, in the course of doing that 
trip, in the course of looking for those things, I had other wonderful and terrible and whatever experiences that ends up in the book. But I had a, I had a, I had a structure. I had a, I had a, I had a mission in mind. Um, and it's, it's become more and more of that where we're now before I leave for a place, I've learned everything I, I, I possibly can about the, the place and the, and the topic I'm looking to write about before I even get there. Mm. Of course I leave, I leave space because I'm writing first person narrative. Um, there's definitely a space there for things that happen that are not related to the, the particular uh, uh, thrust of the, of, of the book. Um, but I do have an, an agenda. Uh, there's just things I want right. to see and particular things I want to write about. I kind of miss the old days though. I kind of miss the, the <laughs> idea just to go out, to go with a, go to the backpack and see what happens. Um, but I think, you, I think you can only write that book once. I think you can only be the ignorant traveler once. And mm. then after that, you, after that, you have to start going to the library. You know, I, I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think you can only be that guy once. Yeah. Well, it, it, would, I, it would strike me that your, you know, your readers would at least, uh, again, not, not that they're the judge, but at some point people would expect you to like get a clue and <laughs> not yeah, be, exactly. you know, not be stumbling into like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this happened. Cause that's kind of what happens, especially when you're traveling, when you're a, a new traveler or a young traveler, everything you're like, you know, you approach the world so doe eyed and everything that feels different is like heightened. You have a heightened sense of awareness about it. Over time, you start to adapt and like become more integrated into the culture. So it makes sense. It's almost like, you know, uh, I think for me, I know I can relate this to almost my practice with writing. You know, when I was a younger writer, um, it was just kind of like, let's create and like say something and find that state of flow ideally. And it may be something special, but after a while, you kind of have some ideas that you're ruining out. It's almost like what you're saying with your with your yeah. travel constraints, right? It's like you have you put some parameters in place that kind of give you some guidelines, some guideposts to navigate through, but you also retain, you know, or or you build in space so that opportunities can arise. And then, you know, you so there's almost like a, a sense yeah. of constraint around the total freedom that helps you navigate maybe a little bit more thoroughly, whether you know, we're talking about a, a creative project or traveling itself. Yeah, and I think that the biggest sign that that's what I'm doing is that I still love to do it. Uh, um, right. You know, these these trips are work, and and you know I I'm I'm there. I'm I'm doing interviews. I'm transcribing, which is the worst type of work. Um, <laughs> I'm doing all that all that stuff you're supposed to do. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I came back from two months in Gaza last fall, and I'm like, wow, that was amazing. You know, it was it was it was fun. It was hard. I, you know, I, I worked hard, um, but it was it was fun. The other thing I want to say to that too is. You know, as, as, I'm only kind of, I'm kind of half joking when I say I'd, I'd like to be the naive backpacker with with no agenda, because traveling with an agenda, um, and by agenda I don't mean like a, a political agenda. By agenda I mean a, right. a, a focus, a topic to to, to seek out, a, mm-hmm. a mission, um, has brought me to those amazing places that I never would have had, a, I never would have been uh, right. had I not had I not had a mission. Right. Um, that the, the Iran book, I was seeking out the kind of these, the, the tombs of these ancient Persian poets and looking for those tombs brought me into the, into the middle of nowhere in these, in these, in these beautiful deserts in Iran, um, to find these places that I never would have known existed had I not, um, not, not had this project. And so far, it brought me so far beyond whatever the regular travelers, uh, 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 trail is as well you know i was i was well off the lonely pla- lonely planet maps um when i when i was doing this stuff um 
because it was the story that brought me to those places and brought me off the map. And, and uh, um, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And not just the places, but the people too. You, you know, if you spend all your time kind of uh, amongst um, on, on a kind of uh, a well-beaten path, you, you meet people who are well beaten by, by, by tourism too. You meet, you meet, you meet guides and hustlers and, 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 and hoteliers and all that kind of stuff. And they could be great and wonderful, but once you get out there, you're meeting, you're meeting people who are, who are, who, who treat you with this incredibly sincere uh, kind of generosity. That's not mm. linked to mass tourism. And, and those people are gold. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's almost like the, it's, it's an untouched opportunity to, be in, in a really human experience when you find those yeah. people who are off the off the beaten path of tourism. I can relate it to having traveled in India a couple of times where, you know, you're walking down a very busy street and there's shops and, you know, everybody's trying to sell you something and they're, and they're just hustling. They're just making, they're making a living. They're, they're, they're exploiting yeah. the market, which is that there's, their job. you know, someone like, yeah, it's their job. And, and then every once in a while, you know, you'll, you'll venture out of the city and you'll walk down the street uh, or, you know, go to another town that's not frequented by tourists and you find yourself suddenly in this raw opportunity to exchange a story through a translator um, and, or just kind of explain who you are, where you're from, and what you're doing. And uh, it's it's suddenly all the more rewarding because you're both not expecting it and because, like you're saying, Marcello, it's, it's so unique when you get out of the – out of the 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 tourism bubble that that exists yeah. in um, these different places. So let's let's transition or, or go all the way back to the beginning because we were talking about you with the backpack and kind of finding your finding these stories. And um, I believe that your story you know really begins in, in this sense um, at the turn of the millennium in in Jerusalem mm. in 1999, and you spent the turn of the millennium traveling throughout Israel and Egypt. And in your, uh, on your website, on, in your bio, you say you returned home as, to Calgary as a, a freelance writer. So my question for you is, was a love of writing born during this time at the turn of the millennium when you were traveling in Israel and Egypt? Or was uh, writing something that you had always kind of like done and taken with you, but here you maybe fell into some stories that needed to be told? You know, like how did how did the the transition from, you know, whether there was writing in your past or not become uh, a will to become a freelance writer and to start to freelance um, more professionally. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, um, the, the, my, the, my first book, the Africa book was probably half written when I, when I did that trip, uh-huh, okay. but, but um, that was essentially journaling. You know, like, like I said before, it, it is, 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 is terribly un- unsophisticated writing. There was, there was no kind of, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> journalistic integrity to it or anything like that. But, but no, it, it was, it was those, I spent, I think it was, and in the end it was like three or four months I spent, uh, you know, in, in, in Israel, Palestine and Egypt on that, on that trip. And yeah, then I started to meet people who had compelling stories to tell that I felt were important, you know, and I was, mm-hmm. I was there amongst, I was there in a, in a, in a, in a very heated place at a relatively heated time, although back you look back at, at, at fears of Y2K, it almost seems cute compared, right. to, compared to what compared to what has gone on uh, in the years since. Um, but it, but it was it was a place in in conflict. It was a place with a history of struggle um, between Israelis and Palestinians as well. There was this, there was this millennial stuff going on, um, uh, which 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 had in, in in Jerusalem had had you know some some religious crazies from the states who were who were there expecting mm-hmm. you know Jesus to show up at the stroke of midnight oh, uh, and, and and that was a fantastic story um 
you know, and I, I befriended uh, uh, some really good people who were had this had some political awareness and cultural awareness, and I was able to travel around with them. And so, and I, you know, I fell in love with an Italian girl in, in the in the in an Egyptian desert for a week. You know, and so there's there's yeah. there was those all those those kinds of stories that 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 um that were actual stories and not just journaling of what I did that day. I I, I found stories with with beginnings, middles, and ends. Um, stories that other people would find interesting, although perhaps the Italian love affair not so much. Um, <laughs> but uh, but there was there was something was the, the, I felt like I was uh, this was the first time I was I was seeing uh, uh, stories in a professional way, and it was the first time I ever got I got I wrote a story about my guide in Jerusalem for the Cairo Times, mm-hmm. um, and and that was you know I had written some a, a few little. Uh, shitty uh, uh, magazine stories before then, but this was, I was like in an international magazine um, right. and it was, it wasn't my fine. It wasn't my finest work. I wouldn't show it to anybody, but I was published in the Cairo times. And I felt like a, I felt like uh, legit. I, you know, I, I felt like I, I had arrived in a, in a certain way. I was going to get a, I was looking yeah. for a work with the Cairo Cairo times as a, even just as a proofreader, just to be at the magazine for a little while that fell through and I came home anyway. But just having that that brief experience as a professional magazine guy, um, that it was very brief, but that I loved it. And um, you know, I came back with that with that magazine in my backpack and uh, with my byline, and it was and it was it was it was it was a very good it was a great moment for me. Yeah, that's really cool. That's that's wonderful. I, I definitely know that feeling. I think anyone who's done any amount of writing, whether it's like professional or freelancing or not. You know, you look back at something that you were like, you thought was the the pinnacle of your artistic abilities, you know, at the time and uh, how far you've come since then when you look back on it and think, my goodness, like, you know, it's just, it, sh- it shows you quite a lot about there's always room to improve. And, uh, but you, but at the same time, you can only ever be exactly where you are with your, yeah. with your work. You need to, you know, kind of put in the time and develop the skills and, and treat it as artistry, which, you know, uh, I'd be curious to read that article because <laughs> comparing it and contrasting it to your other work, Marcello, would be, it's just, you know, it's, it's always interesting just to see the evolution of one's writing. And, oh, you know, sure. now, because especially as I'm reading Walls, there's I love how in your narrative you even incorporate this a sense of lightness and a sense of you know humor, not in a way that degrades the situation or makes light of the situation, but you know you kind of poke fun at yourself. It's like a little bit self-deprecating in these you know situations sure. that that bring somebody along, and so they feel like they're with you, and you're not you know you're not. Uh, you're 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 just as vulnerable as the reader is in entering these stories, which I think is is a totally impressive skill and, and a beautiful element to your to your narrative and your storytelling. Um, you know, that's and, and thank yeah. you, but you know, and that's and that's deliberate. You know, yeah, let's, right. Let's, let's you know. I think I think the the, the Marcello you meet in, in in on the page is 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 pretty much me for sure. But I think right. I think every everyone who writes first person nonfiction has to understand that they are a they are a character in that story um they and and the writer needs to craft him or herself a, per, a persona uh it, it, it on the page in the same way that they would any other character on the page right. in fact it's more impo- it's more important because that person's with you the entire way mm. you know and you you have to be a a uh 
an amiable guide, an amiable travel companion for 300 pages. Right. I think that's, that's, that's important. It's not just you. It's a version of you that's going to, that's going to carry a narrative, uh, from start to finish. And, and, and I think writers need to understand that, that, they, that, that, that is a very important part of it. No matter whether or not, whether or not, whenever you're writing a piece of nonfiction, the, the author is present in the text and, mm-hmm. and has to be. And and so 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 that author's presence has to be crafted like every other part of that. Uh, right. Yeah, that, that. that makes sense because I mean, if you think about it, when your your responsibility as the writer is you do, I mean, you have a responsibility to the reader as the writer, which is that you're not in the role of writing a story to like show all your different sides and facets and complexities as a right. human being. You're, you're trying to, you're trying to, you have a responsibility to this person who's who's reading your words almost to you know to be understandable. So you have to, yeah. I, I really like that advice. That makes a lot of sense. I've never actually thought about it as such before, but, and it's not so much playing a character, but it's, it's, I, I think it's, you know, you have to, you have to cultivate sort of a persona that's consistent. Otherwise Absolutely. you may distort the understanding of where, of who the reader is with. And that yeah. could probably make them drop the book quicker than anything else, which is, you know, that there's this feeling of inconsistency in the narration or confusion. And um, so it's a, it's great advice. And it's actually some that I don't believe I've heard before. So I, I thank you for that. Oh no, that's great. The, 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 there's the, the flip side though, is if you do that too much and, and you, and right. you, 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 your persona becomes far larger than necessary. Right. You know, a, a, a lot of times when I when I do workshops about travel writing or creative nonfiction, mm-hmm. people ask me, "Well, how much how much I should be in the work?" And the only answer to that question is the exact right amount. You know, you know, you know. There's there's there's, there's there could be too much and there could be not enough. Um, but yeah, whatever you whatever you have in there has to be servicing the the the, the entire project as a whole and not overwhelming it, nor being so um, so skeletal that the that it's a distraction. You don't you don't you, also, you don't want your readers to, to be saying who is this I'm who is this I'm with for three hundred pages. At the same time, right. you don't want your readers to say I'm so sick of this guy. You know, you know. But by the time you get halfway through, that you put the book down. Right. Absolutely. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I like that. I like the, the, it's, it's one of those truths that you have to navigate with something like art, which is that there's never a perfectly right answer that someone else can give to you, right? No. When it turns, when it's about, you know, how much of myself do I reveal? It's like, well, enough, enough is the answer. Yeah. Which the, would, the right amount. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The right amount. It would drive somebody crazy, but it's, it's interesting, Marcello, because this is the kind of world that we're living in now. And, you know, a lot of our writers, have different aspirations and some of them are, it's just, you know, just a a simple matter of curiosity around. I want to explore myself, my voice in writing or tell some stories. Some people have, you know, bestseller dreams, but it's interesting because there's such uh, an incredible amount, like an insurmountable number of pieces of content and how to advice online when it comes to writing and and putting yourself out there, starting a blog, writing a book. And I find that, some of the most reliable advice is the stuff that, you know, you just mentioned, which is that it's not a perfect how-to guide, but it's kind of like getting back into the human side of what this art is, which is that it's going to be imperfect. You need to use good judgment. You need to rely on, you know, editors or or people to help you and like see yes. your work and your blind spots. Uh, it seems like, you know, writing while it can feel a very solitude exercise does ultimately to, to improve the art. It has to become communal. It has to become a little bit more vulnerable than just keeping the words to yourself and engaging other teachers and fellow writers um, to 
bridge the gaps and, and illuminate the blind spots. Yeah, too too many too many of the self-published writers and bloggers forget or feel that they don't need an editor. Mm-hmm. You know, or, or they feel that an editor is, is an enemy. He's the, I, the term I get all the time is gatekeeper. Like, mm-hmm. no, it's not a gatekeeper unless unless the other side of the gate is your work is better. You know, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. we need we need other people to look at our work. We need we need people to tell us that that sentence is garbage when it's garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, this uh, this idea that an editor is only the someone who keeps who holds you back is something that the kind of beginning writers have to have to get out of their system. I mean, there's there's editors that are better than others. There are editors that are lousy. But uh, if if you think that what you're putting down on the page is good to go with, with, without anyone else, with anyone else's eyes on it. I think you're kidding yourself. Yeah. And and that brings me to my next question, Marcello. It's one that just kind of pops into my head right now, which is the writing being a part of you versus the writing being something that's not you, you know, in, in other words, the, the personal stake that we feel with writing, uh, you know, writers who writers and creatives and artists, they always, always kind of come from a place I think initially of that the work that I'm creating is my baby. And like, they take such a personal, they take it so personally, there's a personal attachment to the words. And I think that, you know, when you talk about a lot of writers uh, associating editors with being gatekeepers or being bad and being, being evil, it's because when the work is, is butchered and you, you know, have those images from, from grade school of the red pen kind of tearing up a paper It, it feels so personal and it's it's almost like a little bit like we're, we're grown-ass adults. Like we don't need to be taking this so personally. Yeah. But at the same time, there is this relationship that one finds like to the self through like writing and artistry and self-expression. So I'm, I'm curious for you because there's – it's the, what we're talking about now is like, you know, being – did being able to de- detach yourself from the work that you're producing so that the work becomes better and it becomes more readable, more enjoyable, and a better vessel for the stories and messages. So I, I'm curious about, is this something that you yourself have made a practice of? Is it something you've just learned being a professional writer? Um, where are the roots for you of being able to kind of understand that there's the work and then there's you, but you need to almost distinguish or divorce your emotional uh, your emotional like care and consideration of the work you know what yeah. I'm saying like where yeah, is, I think so how do you how do you divorce it a little bit yeah I, I think it is for me it's as simple as the fact that I, my ego isn't big enough that I think that the, the work is done when I when I put on the page I quite mm. I quite love being edited um, I, uh, I I turn in stuff uh, both magazine work and, and and book stuff to to, to editors with the with the full expectation and and often pleading that they that they that they help me with this, um, you know I I, uh, I think maybe that'll change. Maybe I'll turn into the kind of maybe I'll turn into the kind of writer who th- who, who, who who thinks that what what what's what's done is done. But right now I I, I, I enjoy the process. Um, I, mm. I enjoy the working with an editor. I trust, mind you. Like I've I've had. Uh, not with my books, but I've had experiences with magazine editors that have been negative, um, and that, some that I would I would refuse to work with again. Uh, um, yeah. But for the most part, I I quite like the that that collaboration at the end to make a piece better. Um, I think so. Then for me, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I I believe that in most cases uh, the work is better after an after after I've let it go. 
and, and let someone else, you know, scratch their red pen through it. Um, yeah. Most of the time it is. And, and we'll argue, we'll argue different points or whatever. And sometimes I win those arguments and sometimes I don't, but I've, I've never, I've, certainly none of my books have I felt that, it, um, that it's gotten away from me, that it's no, it's no longer what I wanted. It's become something else. There's all those horror stories you hear, but it's not, that, that's never happened to me. Uh, mm-hmm. working, on, working on walls, the editor, uh, John Vigna, is a, is a friend, which I thought might have been a dangerous uh, thing to do. <laughs> and he's also a, right. but he's a, he's a fantastic writer uh, of, of both fiction and, and non. Um, and I, I felt I felt wonderful with John uh, with my book in John's hands, and he did a, he did a fantastic job with it. Um, if I was if I was if I felt that work had been ruined by editors, I might have a different uh, uh, opinion on that. But so far, it it hasn't. I think I, I want a writer need wants his work to be as the best possible, and uh, you need sometimes you need uh, help with that. Right. Absolutely. I think it's, it's a big part of the journey. Like in, in any, in any like service minded work is that, you know, it takes all of you to start to like take the initiative, to make the choice, to make the decision, to make the commitment. But then once you do decide and you start to create something that's meant for other people, as with a book, as with an article, as with whatever the case may be, whatever your art form is, that there's this certain acceptance that you need to go through that, once you start, then you need others. Yeah. And that's kind of where I want to take the the turn in our, our next question, Marcello, is um, because obviously, you know, we talked about walls. Uh, we you've you've written about like these really tough topics and, and that take um, a lot of care and consideration. And more and more, you're saying, you know, you've, you mentioned at the top of the call that um, there's not necessarily a political agenda that drives your work, but these socio-political issues naturally come up, obviously, in the course of the work when you're dealing with refugees in exile, when you're dealing with disenfranchisement, when you're dealing with uh, these just really important issues that feel like they're more and more on a social consciousness, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, as time goes on, as the conversation, as the necessity rises, and as perhaps our world seems to get smaller and smaller. Uh, So my question for you is that a lot of writers and storytellers and creatives tend to want to veer away from creating debate and dialogue that may feel polarizing. And I think a lot of the time when you have like a conscientious sort of a creative person, they can see both sides. They have strong beliefs. They want to speak maybe to the middle, but they know that even, you know, speaking to a a middle ground may be whitewashed or, you know, I think there's a fear, especially again, in a a political uh, environment like, it is today in a presidential election season that they're scared to take a side or be cast as on this side or that side of the debate. So what makes you different in, in this? I know we've, we've talked about um, that you're not so much taking a side, but when you're even talking about difficult subjects like refugees and walls and dividing lines and barriers, where does the, the willpower or the bravery stem to have a conversation around these issues and know that some people may cast dispersions on you or write you off or put you on one side, like kind of like label you and your work uh, as being whatever the case may be. How, how do you mm. face that? Is it something that you don't think about at all or um, have you encountered it, you know, in your travels? 
yeah, sometimes. I mean, you know, here I am, I'm, and it'll happen more more now with this Israel Palestine book, obviously, um, which is which is a a landmine of uh, I'll I'll offend everybody with with it, um, both on both sides, um, <laughs> right. I think I, I, I guess I, I don't mind. I don't mind if people disagree with me. I don't mind if people are offended, um, as long as I can back up what I say. As long mm-hmm. as I can say, "Hey, you know what? This is what this is what I saw with my own eyes." If 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 if, if you don't believe me, that's fine. But this is this is the truth. This is what I saw. Um, and, and I'm base, I'm basing my opinions on on this particular issue on on my personal experience, um, and 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 that's something I have I think ab- above most readers of my work is that I've actually been to these places. You you you, you want to talk about the right. U.S. Mexico border? Let's talk about it. But I I was in Nogales. I was in I was I was I I hung out with 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 migrants on both sides of the line. I walked those trails. I did all that stuff. And and that's not me self-aggrandizing. That's me doing my job, you know, and and so I, I think mm-hmm. I, I come from a place of, of I wouldn't use the expertise the word expertise because I, I don't consider myself an expert, but I come from the, the point of view of, of actual personal experience and 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 not just with policy, but with 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 actual people, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm 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 less interested in in in, in the the measurements and numbers and this and, and policy details than I am with, okay, well, what does, what does Ahmed think about this? What, you know, uh, what does mm-hmm. Lucia think about this? You know, cause they actually, they actually are impacted by the decisions. So I'm telling people's stories and, 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 and um, if my sympathies are laid bare, that's fine with me. I, I couldn't do that if I was a, a newspaper journalist, you know, and, and I, and I, and mm-hmm. you know, but I'm not, you know, I'm writing in the first person. I know th- this is this is this is my way of seeing the things that I've seen, and you can either agree with it or not. And so, if people want to people want to call, you know, I, I mean, I wrote about, for example, I wrote in my um, uh, Walls book. There was one a very uncomfortable scene in which I was invited uh, for lunch with uh, with uh, Israeli settlers on on a settlement, and um, mm-hmm. you know, I opposed the settlements. Um, but I thought this was an interesting opportunity to go and and and, and meet meet some of these people whose 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 uh, politics I frankly find abhorrent, and and mm-hmm. um and you know I, I wrote about my time there uh, uh, while I was there the um uh, a song a, a, a kind of mildly racist song was sung, and I and I put that on my I put that in the book and I put that on my blog, and I was accused of all sorts of things you know of 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 uh, of you know, accused of, of, of anti-Semitism because I wrote that down. I was accused uh, because I said that the, the settlements shouldn't be there, that that made me a bad person or that made me uh, uh, you know, hate Jews or, or all this kind of stuff. Right. And I'm like, look, I'm writing you – I'm writing down what I saw and heard and, and how I felt about it. Um, and and if, 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 that, if that upsets people, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um I've also gotten stuff, you know, I'm writing this book now about the Palestinian literary culture and I've gotten these, these, these kind of anonymous comments on, on, on online about, well, why aren't you writing about Israeli literature? I'm like, well, cause that's not my interest, you know, or, or you know, mm-hmm. and I've gotten accused because I'm writing about Palestinians that therefore means that I am anti everything else. And, and right. <laughs> you know, and, and like, no, this is just my focus. You know, if I was writing about Iran, that doesn't make me anti-Iraq. 
You know, I was right. You know, I wrote about West Africa. It doesn't mean I'm anti Southeast Asia. You know, I'm, this just happens to be the focus of my interest. Um, but when you're dealing with certain areas of the world, you know, there's, there's an assumption that your interest is, is, is comes with this, this baggage of, 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 uh, right. of, of opinions and activism and all this kind of stuff. And people get, people get angry. I've had people walk out of, uh, uh, my readings, uh, once in a while, hmm. once in a while. And that's, and that's fine. I've walked out of readings hmm. myself, you know, like I, I, I uh, it's fine. If you, if you're going to be angry with me, that's fine. But understand that nothing I'm putting on the page is not true. The things, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not making shit up. And, um, mm-hmm. if your, if your response to what I saw is different than my response to it, then that's, that's, you have every right to have that response. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, I think it's like your, your true motivations, uh, become your, your foundation. You know, like if you are seeking out scenarios or manipulating the facts and details of a story to support like a political thesis, then that's, that's like, you know, it's like one of those things where years down the line, like the whole story unravels because like someone finds out that it wasn't true. Um, but, but I mean, when the, when you're truly motivated by, observing and reflecting and sharing your experience, you know, other people are going to be able to, or other people are going to choose to assign their own story to that yeah. saying that you're, you know, anti-Semite or anti-American or anti-Canadian and, or whatever the case may yeah. be. But truly, I mean, that's, that's like the Holy grail is being able to say like, listen, I disagree with what you're saying because all I'm doing is sharing what I saw, sharing what I felt. And uh, so it sounds like that's, that's a really powerful source of bravery is like really having clear intentions and being able to even perhaps share those intentions openly in stating that, you know, this isn't motivated by a particular agenda or, or if it is then to state that and, yeah. and then at least be upfront with it. Um, so is that the kind of advice that you may give to a writer who's, you know, maybe feeling called to confront a topic that's difficult or even like speak truth to power and like tell you know, a story that may be polarizing, um, but is afraid of the reaction. Like, what would you kind of say? Is is it from your experience? How do they? What what should they remember and, and take to heart? I think they should do it as long as they they do it well and they and they do it as as uh, they 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 put in the work. That's mm-hmm. I, I don't think you can yeah. I don't think you can go into um, into writing about about uh, contentious issues, geopolitical stuff, religious stuff, uh, flippantly. You know, I, I don't think I don't th- I don't think you can go into it with a, with a, with a, with a with a superficial understanding of what's going on. Um, you can you can pick whatever opinion you want it you want. You can you can you can pitch your tent on whatever side of issue you like, but you better know what the fuck you're talking about. You know, it, <laughs> you know, like that's that's the that's the problem is that is if you if yeah. you go in with with a, with a very with a with a with a very superficial uh, understanding of, of a topic, then don't write about it. For heaven's sake, don't write about right. it. You know, uh, and, yeah. and you'll you'll get you'll get crucified, and you should be. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we can never know everything about a, about a about a about a situation, but you, we we got to do the work. Um, we got to do the work. That's so. That's what that's what I would say. Write about whatever you want, uh, and and pick your side um, if you want to pick a side. Uh, but do the work. You know, know what you're talking about. Right. Absolutely. So, Rachel, that, that brings us towards the, the end of our conversation already. If you could believe it's it's flown by. And I thank you again for taking the time to speak with us about all this. It's really informative for me. It's it's very motivating as well. And I think for me, just, you know, as I'll as I'll share with the writers as they listen to this interview, I think the, the big thing that I'm I'm feeling is that there's a real there's a real special if you want your for me, if if I want my art, my writing to 
carry the water that I think it's capable of carrying, then I know I need to do more and more to walk the walk first before I talk the talk. Yeah. You know, it's 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 one of those things where, you know, you, you got to put yourself out there and you really need to have the experiences in order to give, you know, to create that foundation that we're talking about, the foundation of that I, that I have something worth hearing um, and, and I feel really confident about what I can share because I've, I've been, I've been there. I've walked in those shoes. Uh, and that's, you know, that makes the story worth telling in itself. So, uh, just to, to start to wrap up our, our call, I want to know, Marcello, if, uh, to know a little bit more about the project that you're working on now, you've mentioned mm-hmm. it, uh, that as the, as the project, the literary, uh, literary collection, literary works from, uh, from Palestine. Uh, and, and also, is there another, one more, maybe looking down the line. I'm not sure if you've had any space to give it thought, but, um, but perhaps you have of a dream destination or another writing topic or question that you'd care to share with us. I swear that we won't steal the idea from you, but <laughs> any, is there anything else that's kind of like playing in your, in your creative mind as well? You know, I, I, I wish there were, I'll be perfectly honest with you. You know, I'm this, this, mm-hmm. um, I, I've, I spent a lot of my time in, a, in my writing career, writing about the Middle East. And and in the Islamic world in general, I guess, and and I and part of me wants to kind of okay, let's move on to something different, uh, an, an, another place, another topic. But I see, I continue to be drawn to that too. And now with 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 refugees and and and, and all this stuff going on, I mean, there, there's 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 lots of things that I, that I would look at. But no, at, at this point, there's not a dream destination for me. I kind of I, I kind of wish that there was. Um, hmm. uh, you know, with, with walls, um, walls too. It wasn't a dream destination. It was like a dream itinerary. It's it's like look at all these places around the world where there are walls, and hey, wouldn't it be cool to go to them? And, and that that was essentially yeah. the the the, the uh, kind of the inspiration of that book was something almost that simple, really. You know, uh, you know, uh, a, a travel writer really wants a good itinerary, you know, and, and, and in a way that was it. Yeah. For this, for the one I'm working on now, the 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 the, the Palestinian literature one. This was something that this actually stems back to, to my time at uh, the turn of the millennium. You know, ever ever since uh, I, I first visited Jerusalem in '99, I wanted to write about Palestinians, life and life in contemporary Palestine. But I wanted to approach it from a way that was different than what I had been reading. I wanted I didn't want to come with the politics straight on. You know what I mean? I, I, I didn't want to go in right. Um, I think there's only two kinds of Palestinians we see uh, in North America, maybe in the West in general. We, we see the young guy with the kafia title across his face throwing a stone, or we see the old woman uh, wailing in front of her destroyed house. Right? These are the two Palestinians we, right. we know. We don't know anyone else. And so I wanted to I wanted to to write a book that that kind of shows other you know real Palestinians, like uh, something beyond this this one single story. And I didn't know how to do that um, until I ended up teaching at a, at a the Palestinian writing workshop. I, I taught a group of, of uh, women writers um, for a month. I spent in, in near Ramallah, and I'm like, oh, maybe this is my way in. It's through it's through literature. And so this is what the this is what the book is now. I, I'm, I'm interviewing contemporary poets. I'm visiting libraries. I'm talking to books booksellers. And there's all these interesting stories around books. And around authors, they've all lived fascinating lives for the most part. There's some young women doing it. There's some old men doing it and, and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm getting to know life in Palestine through the voices of these literary people. Now, politics, mm-hmm. is, politics is there. In fact, politics is very close to everything that, is, that, that happens there. But it's not my first – it's not my point of contact. 
my point of contact is when did you when did you start writing poems or tell me the story of this library and from there we see a larger we see the larger picture uh, uh, where, where, the, where the conflict comes in but it, it, it's a way to get in there through the back door and not not come head on and, and, and you know and, and throw politics at the reader right from the right from the start and it's right. the, the stories have been really I mean the, the, I'll be honest the writing's not going great. But the material, <laughs> but the materials gold. Like you know, I did I did three trips uh, to, to Palestine in the last year. Um, the stories people have told me have been amazing. I've seen some amazing stuff. Yeah, the the the, the material I have to work with is great. The hard part is is doing something with it. Um, but it, it's uh, it's uh, this is this is what this is where the new one is going. It's like uh, having a giant uh, piece of marble as a, as a sculptor. And you got to start. You got to start chipping away at it to figure out what the what the art is. It's in there somewhere, um, but it sure isn't. <laughs> it sure isn't now. And that's how I feel. That's how I feel with my. You know, I, I'm staring right now in front of me. Right behind my computer is is a wall of books on, uh, written by Palestinians and, and you know hours and hours of uh, interview transcripts and and all of this stuff. And I just got to do something with it. I mean, you you do write in this way that I would say has a tone of of like journalistic integrity to it. When I'm reading your words, especially in walls, um, I feel like I am being led on a journey that, that does have the more, I would say like objective overtones. Like you're, you're telling a story that is from your first person point of view, as you mentioned, it, it kind of feels like you're, we're walking along with you uh, through these unique landscapes as you have the backpack on. And, and, uh, but I love the sentiment that you express that you, you do also, you're not a journalist per se, but you do have the ability to, tell stories that evoke sympathy, you know, and I think that that's, mm-hmm. that's the most basic starting point we have as human beings when it comes down to understanding others' situations uh, and putting ourselves in their shoes. It's empathy, right? We, we relate to one yeah. another and be able to kind of understand how it might be to live in the shadow of something like a wall that's either keeping you from your home or, you know, you settle a, a new home in a tent, um, alongside this barrier and uh just that just eliciting that emotion you don't really don't even need to assign like a judgment to it or a final conclusion you know it's almost like that kind of says it says a lot on its own yeah you know the way i see it is is the best way to develop empathy towards a, a, a people or a cause is to actually sit down with those who are directly involved with it not everyone can do that so but i do or i can and so so i i i I'm the one who brings my readers to that space, and and, uh, and my sympathies are 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 born of those interactions of what I see uh, firsthand, and uh, I pass those observations on to to the reader through the through the stories, and then they can decide whether or not they agree with my my final take on it or not. But at least I'm giving them I'm giving them an opportunity to see what I'm seeing, and I think that's that's the that's the best I can do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with that, Marcello, I just want to really thank you for taking the time to speak with us today, to share your insights about writing, your relationship to writing, your book. Thank you so much for taking the time. And we look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you. I've enjoyed this conversation very much. Thanks so much.
I'm Dave Rosillo, and this is Written Spoken. Bye for now.